If you would now please take a Bible in hand and turn to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at one verse in 2 Corinthians this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles in the Pew Rack, we are on page 964. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Maybe you've noticed this before. Um, maybe you haven't. If you haven't, I'll, I'll want to plant this seed in your mind. One day... Read another of Paul's letters, and then read 2 Corinthians, and read them close together. And notice how odd 2 Corinthians is. It's unlike any other letter he's, he's written. It's, it's not very systematic. He seems very emotional, and at times all over the place. And there's a reason why. It's a letter written to a church from his heart. It's a pastor writing to a church that he started by God's grace. And now his pastoral ministry, his apostolic ministry, is under fire among this congregation that he dearly loved. It's one of several letters uh, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Two of them are in our New Testament. And Paul, the planter of the church there in Corinth, is now having his relationship to these believers tested. Now, prior to this letter, he had sent them a very hard letter. And he did so intentionally. He needed to address problems in the church. And he was intending to do so in order that the next time he visited them, the visit could be filled with encouragement having already addressed the things that needed to be corrected prior to his visit. But then, as events are shaping out, his visit to them is delayed, and he changes his mind, and he reroutes his plan, and he doesn't come to them when he first told them to prepare uh, for his coming. He is coming later, and now he's in Macedonia it's 55 or 56 AD, and he sends them this letter. And while he has been away, and since his plans have changed, there are false apostles who have come in, and they've led astray part of the congregation. They say, this guy Paul, he's unreliable. So is his message. And so they twist the gospel of Christ. And we see that later in the letter that there's evidence for that. And so Paul now finds himself having to, before going to see this church again, send this letter. And it is uh, what was known in the ancient world as a, a defense of his life. He's having to defend his ministry and he's doing so for the sake of his message. Here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this situation produces 
a peculiar and a powerful message. So before we dive into just one verse in this letter, let us ask for the Lord's help in prayer this morning. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. It is a word about your Son. And so by your Spirit, help us hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. May your word convict, convince, and comfort each according to their need this morning. And may you receive all the glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy Inspired in inerrant word, may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Three things from this one verse. Jesus is God's yes to you. The second thing is Jesus is our amen to God. And lastly, the gospel of Jesus makes you and I yes and amen people. Jesus is God's yes to you. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that God is a promise-making God. As I just shared a little bit of the context, there's questions about Paul's character and his reliability, and it's causing concerns about Paul's message, and so he begins with saying, Here, God is a promise-making God. We see this from the very beginning of Scripture, that after sin enters the world, there comes the fall, and there are consequences for sin as God promised, but then also there is a remedy for sin that God promises from the very beginning. So I remind you in Genesis 3.15, God promises Eve that she would produce offspring who would crush the head of the evil serpent who deceived her and led her away from God. God promised in Genesis 9 to Noah, after having cleansed the earth of the wickedness that had filled the entire earth, having wiped out every person on the earth but one family, God promised that he would never judge the world in that way again to Noah. And so he put a rainbow in the sky. Then in Genesis 12, God called a man named Abram, later to be named Abraham, and he told him and promised him that he would make him to be a great nation and that through his family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Much later than that, many years in redemptive history, God promises to the second king of Israel, the king after his own heart, David, 
In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, that one of David's offspring would have a forever kingdom and a forever throne. And then, hundreds of years later, through the prophet Jeremiah, God promises a new covenant with his people. A covenant that would no longer require a constant need for ritual sacrifice. With each promise, there was a long period of waiting. And questions arise. Is God a God who keeps His promises? And Paul recognizes very pastorally and sensitively the Corinthians. They feel the same way with him. Does our pastor keep his promises? Does the apostle keep his promises? And so for the moment, he points away from himself and points to God and says, yes, God does keep his promise. He will give greater assurance than the blood of bulls and goats. He will place a descendant of David on the throne forever. He will bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. He will send one through the offspring of Eve to crush the evil serpent. Paul says quite simply, the Sunday school answer is how? Jesus. Jesus. In Jesus, we see that God is not just a promise-making God, but He is a promise-keeping God. And Paul's point is that Jesus is the fulfillment and the fulfiller of all of God's promises. As Charles Hodge put it, Jesus is the affirmation and the one who accomplishes God's promises, the one who affirms God's promises to his people and the one who accomplishes what is required in God's promises to his people. Uh, As Dane Ortland helpfully puts it, Jesus Christ is the flesh and blood proof that God is faithful and true to his word. And so Paul simply says, Jesus is the yes to you of every promise God has made. He is the yes. It's a, it's a title we can ascribe to our Savior. The yes of God to sinners. It's not that God had a wavering message. His message to sinners like you and I is not maybe. But in Christ, definitively, unreservedly, and wholeheartedly, yes. Now, Paul doesn't identify just one promise as we just kind of walk through some of the big promises of Scripture. He just says, any promise that God made, all his promises, it's this open-ended phrase where it's, it could be a billion promises. Any promise that God would make, the answer to that is yes in Jesus. There's a, a multiplicity of promises 
And so you can go through Scripture and comb it from beginning to end. And every time God says He will do something, it is answered in Jesus. So here Paul is very helpful. He's he's helping us read our Bibles, isn't he? He's helping us understand. There is a, a, a drama in the course of the story told in Scripture of what will happen between God and a rebellious people. How will he deal with them? And the answer is Jesus. And so Paul is helping us be better students of God's word. As one person put it, it's kind of like if you had a a mystery novel and you tried to, uh, you read it from cover to cover except for the last chapter was torn out and went missing. Well, you'd be left with a lot of questions, a lot of almost answers. And you'd be left to conjecture what really happened in the end. But the God who knows the end from the beginning revealed his son at the climax of human history so that all those who were looking for an answer found it in Jesus. And now we look back and we see God's answer to all his promises. Many promises, but only answered in Jesus only answered in the Son of God. So if you are in here, you are watching on the live stream, and you are someone who you are checking out Christianity, checking out the church and thinking, well, let's see, maybe there's something positive for me to get and take away from Christianity in a negative world that can, that can help me on my way. A little encouragement for the day. An optimistic thought or two. Maybe some motivation to be kinder to others. And then maybe I can go somewhere else and find another encouragement and another positive and something else to help me on my way. And as I try to construct a meaning for my existence and my life and trying to find my way in the world and maybe even try to relate to the God who exists. The God who exists has made an abundance of promises to sinners, and they are all and only answered in Jesus. We don't come to Christianity, we don't come to church to get a little bit of help as we try to then compose a spiritual life. But it is an all or nothing because it's only found in Christ. Life, satisfaction, meaning, and the fulfillment of all God's promises. Jesus is God's yes to you. Jesus is your amen to God. Look back at verse 20. So Paul says, all the promises find their yes in him. And then he says, and that's why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. When was the last time you like, really thought about the word amen? It just rolls off the tongue 
Lord, thank you for this food. Bless it for our body. In Jesus' name, amen. It's, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing that it, it has become so common, but we've got to be careful that its commonness and regular use doesn't negate its importance. Growing up, I was taught that when we say amen after praying, it's a way of saying, I agree, or I grew up in a different church to, tradition, and so occasionally people would, as the preacher yelled at you, you would yell back, amen. I'm not asking you to do that, but it was another way of saying, I agree. The word amen comes to us from Hebrew, and so it comes into our language uh, as a transliterated word. That just means that there are three Hebrew words, and when you sound them out in Hebrew, they sound like amen. That's where the word comes from. The word means to confirm, to establish. Another way, it's just saying yes. So Paul is doing something very interesting here. He's saying Jesus is God's yes, and then he is our amen. He is our yes to God. And so it's an interesting yes. It's not uh, just the, do you like to go to the beach? And you might say, yeah. And that's a, no one's going to hold you to that. No one's going to like, like base like your integrity, your person, all on that. Because they recognize that some, some days you don't like to go to the beach. Some days it gets too hot. Some days uh, there could be, you know, flies or something at the beach. Some days it could be a stormy day. And so they know that you're not trying to affirm this lifelong position of, I always want to go to the beach. And maybe that is you, but that's for most people. That's not, if someone asks you, do you like the beach? You may say, yeah, sure. This amen yes is more like the yes that a husband and a wife said to each other on their wedding day. It's the, I do with all my heart. Amen yes is what we're looking at here. That's why Jesus occasionally would introduce teaching with amen, amen. Now, most of our English translations don't put it that way. So like in John chapter 5, verse 24, in the ESV, it says, truly, truly. Well, that helps us understand what amen means, or King James, verily, verily. Um, But Jesus was saying, amen, amen. What was he trying to communicate? He says, what's about to come out of my mouth is absolutely authentic. It's something immutable, unchanging. And so the early church, they used amen in worship. You see in 1 Corinthians 14, there Paul is instructing the Corinthians again, saying that, look, you, you need to be able to make your, your worship services in such a way that people can understand what's happening. There was chaos in the service. And he says they have to understand the words that are being said in order that when they hear the gospel proclaimed, people can say amen. 1 Corinthians 14. And then pulling in amen into worship, they were just following Israel's pattern. And we see it in different places throughout the Old Covenant where God's people gathered in worship and they would respond in Amen, Psalm 106, or in First Chronicles 16, when David recovers the Ark of the Covenant and he brings it back and establishes it again in the tabernacle, the 
the worship service closes with the people responding in amen. We see it in Nehemiah. We see it in the prophets. But here, Paul is saying it's through him we utter our amen. It's through him. And it's that reason why in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 57, it was our forefathers in the faith who saw this verse pointing to the mediation of Christ. And that this uttering of amen is loaded with an affirmation that Jesus is our mediator, the one who comes between sinful man and a holy and righteous God. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, I'll turn there. You don't have to, but you can if you'd like. This is Moses preparing the people to go into the land. And he's reminding them of the covenant that they've entered into God with, that in this covenant, God has promised to be their God and their blessings. But these blessings require their obedience. And so, in order to drive this point home, Moses instructed them that when you get into the land, you're going to gather at two mountains, and you're basically going to split the tribes in two at the mountains. And from Mount Gerizim, you're going to read the blessings of the covenant, God's promised blessing. And then from Mount Ebal, you're going to read the curses of the covenant, God's promised judgment for breaking the covenant. So, the tribes split. They're supposed to be at the two mountains. And then, from Mount Ebal, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, or 27, excuse me, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. So someone who within the covenant community is practicing idolatry in their tent. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Then, verse 16, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Eleven times, God says, you do this and you are cursed. And they are to respond with Amen. Sin is our no to God. Sin is our saying that we will be our own God. Sin is saying that we will live by our own dictates and not your command. Sin is saying we will worship what we want to worship and not worship you. We will say no to you. And God is saying, be sure, I promise you, if you say no to me, I will say no to you. And here, what deserves God's wrath and curse Jesus stands and takes a cross and receives God's no for us. And so when we cry out to God and Jesus is our amen, that is what we are affirming. That our sins deserve His wrath and curse. 
and we have said no to him, but that no has been poured out on his only son. And Jesus, your no to God has been dealt with. This promise-keeping God gave us hints along the way that He would remedy our no to Him. And that as He enters into covenant with humanity and He enters into covenant with a covenant people, He gives hints that He knew what it would take to keep His promises. And so after He destroyed all everyone on the earth except Noah. And he said, I'm not going to do that again. And he's implying that there's going to be a wider salvation that one day will come that will be offered to the families of the earth and not just one family. And so what did he do? He put a bow in the sky. And biblical scholars understand then looking at the language in the context that it's the rainbow is meant to look like the warrior's bow bent back, pulled back. And where is it aimed? Not down to the heavens. When he told Noah, remember the rainbow, his point wasn't just, Noah, you remember my promise. He was saying, Noah, I remember my promise and I know all that it will take to deal with your no against me. When he enters into a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, there's the covenant ceremony. And in that covenant ceremony, let me remind you, there are carcasses that have been split into animals that have been torn. And making a covenant, entering into this agreement There are promises for keeping the covenant and there are consequences for breaking the covenant. And so normally both parties would walk through these torn animals and say, if I don't hold up my part, this is what happens to me. If I don't hold up my part, this is what happens to me. But in Genesis 15, God gives Abraham a vision in which a symbol of God's presence passes through the torn carcasses and not Abraham. In the cross, God paid for our no so that he could tell his yes. The cry of amen is one of faith. To those of you who struggle with the assurance that you are saved. You need to hear this desperately today. Jesus and only Jesus is God's yes to you. Church attendance, Bible reading, your repentance, it is not what merits God's yes. And you say, well, I have to respond in faith. I, 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 where, I, there has to be some response on my part. Notice how Paul says, He is our amen. 
to Him. So even in our response to God, it's all put on Christ. None of it is on us. Jesus is our yes to God. This is radical acceptance that is offered to sinners in the gospel. Only in the gospel, but in the gospel. It is deep and full and thorough acceptance of sinners like you and I. And so, in your struggle with assurance, but looking at evaluating your life, your faith, your repentance, your record, coming to God and being accepted by Him begins with, Jesus is my amen, and there is no other. Now from there, a life is produced. But oftentimes, I think God in His fatherly kindness will bring you to a place where you have to begin with just saying, Jesus is my amen. And all the life that is lived from there must be one of gratitude. I remind you that the Christian message isn't the one of you get a fresh start and then you go on with this project of self-improvement and moral reformation. It is one that is God's yes and our amen, always in Christ. So that brings us to the last thing this morning. The gospel of Jesus makes you and I into yes and amen people. The gospel of Jesus makes you and I into yes and amen people. The gospel is the good news of salvation of sinners by the obedience and sacrifice of His Son. Loving your neighbor is not the gospel. Walking in holiness is not the gospel. The gospel is not an ethic. It is not morals. But it produces an ethic. A gospel ethic. That's Paul's point here. That they have brought these concerns and accusations against Paul. And he is saying, the gospel that is yes to you has made me a yes person to you. You see how the the gospel has shaped all his being. He can't shake it. See, the... It's helpful to, as you read the Bible, to identify where in the Bible there is is law, commands, and then there is gospel, good news of salvation. And that is a rich part of our Protestant heritage, that we read the Bible and we recognize law and gospel. And then particularly in in our Reformed understandings, that uh, the law condemns us and shows us our need for Jesus. And then after we come to Jesus, then we begin to walk in obedience to God's law. So it's, for the, if you can picture it, to oversimplify it, you know, the, first comes the law to show you're a sinner, then comes the remedy in Christ that you see the mercy extended, you receive it, and now being made a new creation and united to Christ, then you endeavor to live a life of new obedience to God's law. And we give a, a hearty yes, and that's true, 
I think sometimes we move on to living a life of obedience to the law and it's almost as if we've compartmentalized the gospel. Gospel, done, move on, now obedience. And what we see here in Paul is that all of his life is drawn from the gospel. All of his life is colored by the gospel. Every decision he makes, the gospel is in view. It is the paradigm. It is the the filter. It is his instructions. He looks to the pattern of God's redemption. And it helps him work through complex situations. Here, he, with the Corinthians, he, he has to, to make a, a, a number of decisions related to his responsibilities as, as an apostle and other objectives that he feels like the Lord has given him. And so when he's, he's coming into the situation, he starts doing theological work and say, okay, what is most gracious to them? Because that is the pattern that we see in our Heavenly Father in the giving of his son. And so he evaluates and says, what's most gracious to them is that I don't come to them right now. I go to Macedonia and then I will go to them later. He says so in the letter that he wants them to have more grace and an abundance of grace. And we see Paul working through this in other letters. In Romans 15, there's, there's areas where it's not black or white. Here is obedience and here is disobedience. Uh, there, it, there's complex situations related to the conscience of believers. And so where does he go? He takes it to to the gospel as the pattern. And then we see it in Philippians chapter 2 when he's, he's working out relationships in the church and he says, look, everyone, everyone put others above yourself. And so what does that mean, Paul? And so in Philippians chapter 2, he works out, well, it's the gospel pattern that we have. You know, you still see these around uh, the what would Jesus do bracelets, right? Paul wouldn't have worn a what would Jesus do bracelet. Though he, he probably would have said that's, that's close, it's almost there, but that's, that's almost helpful. He wouldn't have been a, a what would Jesus do, a WWJD, it would have been WHJD, WH. What has Jesus done? What has Jesus done? And then that becomes the way in which he then lives his life. Scott Hafman put it this way. Our actions ought to reflect the character of God's grace as we have come to know it in Christ. So it shapes our ethic. Our ethic is in response, but it is rooted in the gospel, shapes our character, the people we are. So we could spend the rest of this Sunday together thinking about all the many ways that the, the gospel shapes us as people. I'll identify a couple, I think, that are relevant to this place in 2 Corinthians. Paul's in a hard situation. There's a lot of demands There's a lot of demands to make people happy. He's not cold-hearted and and mean towards them. He's he's soft-hearted, but yet he's a confident man. 
He's confident. He's confident in his Savior. He's confident that then he is acting in a way that is gracious to them. When the gospel gets a hold of of your heart in such a way, then it, it, it relieves the fear of man in so many ways. When you know that you are forever accepted in Christ. Well, the criticisms of others, the expectations of others, don't rule your life because the gospel rules your heart. And with that related, he is, he is a humble man. This is something that the, the, the text puts for us, is that he's a humble man. If you, every time you say amen, you're reminded that my sin deserves God's curse and Jesus bore that curse. It keeps us humble. Isn't that something that the, every time we pray at the close of that prayer, exalting Christ, humbling ourselves. And it does produce faithfulness in each of us. That in Christ, God has forever demonstrated that He is dependable and reliable. And as that sinks into who we are, we then, like Paul, like Christ, like our Heavenly Father, grow in dependability, reliability, and integrity. But ultimately, the work of the gospel in our lives always leads to making us into worshipers. It's there in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. It closes, it says, That is why it's through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. That Jesus is God's yes to us, that he is our amen to him, and that then it shapes the way we live in this world until he returns or until we see his face. It brings God glory. It's the gospel that stirs our hearts in worship. And that's why it's so important that each Sunday when we come together to renew our covenant with God, What's one of the things that we do? That we confess our sin, then we hear God's assurance of pardoning grace. That's part of the worship, and then it fuels our worship. There's a mountain of blessing, there's a mountain of curses. Outside of Christ, we are all on the wrong mountain waiting for the wrath and judgment of God. But in between those two mountains, our God planted a cross that He might say yes and we can respond with amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice this morning that your promises of judgment were poured out for your people 
on your son's cross. We rejoice this morning that he chose the cross that he might be your yes to us and our amen to you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.